Good morning. We return again together to John chapter 21. If you want to be turning there, we'll be reading in just a moment verses 20 to 24. You may or may not have noticed in the bulletin that we are titling last week's sermon and this one as a part one and a part two, a focus for those who would follow Jesus. I've done that to point out the way that this entire interaction that we're seeing here between our Lord and Peter, from verse 18 down to verse 24, it all serves us greatly in helping us to focus as we walk our Christian lives. We saw it last week, verses 18 and 19, helped us to focus by reminding us of something. Namely, that our Lord knows the path that he is leading us on. He knows it beforehand. He knows it down to the very details. He already knows that there will be trials and that they will be fearful. And he bids us to follow him anyway, despite those fears. Furthermore, even as he acknowledged those fears, he gives us his promises, doesn't he? Which are enough to carry us all the way through to the end. We saw that in those verses. This morning, verses 20 to 24 are still helping us to focus. And they're doing it again by showing us Peter. This time, Peter is going to serve to exemplify for us another distraction that is ever-present for us constantly as we go through this life. And we might start by describing it like this. We're talking about a distraction that can be surprising to acknowledge and to speak about. The surprising distraction that other people can become to a Christian as that Christian walks through life after the Savior. It it is, I think it's a surprising thing. It's a surprising thing to me to to say. I'm not used to speaking of other people like that. It's not often that other people are described as distractions. The New Testament is full of encouragement and command to put others above ourselves, to love one another, to lay down our lives for each other. This is a good thing. This is the right way to think about those that God has put in our lives around us. But have you not found it to be true that there is no good thing in this life that we are not capable of grabbing hold of and misappropriating in some way? And this morning there's a call before us here toward care and focus in a particular way. And we'll see it, and we'll be warned about it, you could say, from both authors of this book this morning. We'll be warned about this particular distraction as we hear Jesus speak directly to Peter in verses 20 to 22. And then we'll find the same potential distraction being addressed as we hear John add for us as the narrator, verses 23 and 24. We're going to hear it twice. Before we continue, let's read the passage. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, John 21, verses 20 to 24. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? 
When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. We'll walk through this this morning in two broad pieces, by seeing the way that Jesus addresses this with Peter, and then by seeing how, uh, how uh, John complements that and reiterates that. And once we've seen those things, we'll step back and think together about what it is that we gain and learn to apply in what we're being warned about here. Look with me first at the scene that we find in the first set here, verses 20 to 22. There are two men identified in verse 20. There's Peter. And at this point, we suddenly discover that the scene has changed. They're not around the fire any longer here, are they? We have not been told when exactly they changed locations. But what's happening at this point is that Peter and Jesus are now walking. For some reason, I always imagined them walking along the shore of the lake together, but we're not told anything about that. So that's a figment, of, I suppose, of my imagination. Um, we can tell that that's what they're doing, though, because Peter turns around and sees someone following them. Notice that. And Peter identifies him to be the Apostle John, which does not surprise us by now. Who else would it be that would be brought up in conjunction with Peter? It would be following Peter. We've seen Peter and John together many times by now as we've gone through this gospel. But it is interesting how he's identified here. Again, John, who's writing this about himself, uses this designation, the disciple whom Jesus loved. But he also, in order to make this identification, he points us back to something that happened in chapter 13. He points us back to the Last Supper. We read here, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? The link this has to our present account here is the relational link between John and Peter. That's what we're being reminded of. Because remember, John asked that question of Jesus because Peter had quietly signaled to him to ask it. Which is to say, we saw even then, it was a situation that suggested a particular closeness between these two, between Peter and John. And bringing that little moment back to mind makes more sense as well in light of the next verse. Verse 21, we hear a question. When Peter saw him, when Peter saw this one with whom he's had such a history, been through so much together, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now remember what we saw last week. Peter has just been told where his life is going to take him. He has just been told about his final day. About, it said, the death, the kind of death by which he would glorify God. This is what he's just heard. And then the first thing we hear from him, as he notices John following them, is we hear him ask this question. What about him? 
One question that we can think about is, well, why did he ask that? Is he just displaying a curious nature? Um, is he showing this interest out of his love for John? I would imagine there's some of both of those things going on, but again, I can't help but think that John has let us in on what's in Peter's mind a little bit by casually mentioning chapter 13 and these past connections. But either way, the point that's being put to us here is that as Peter is assigned his path, his first reaction is to ask about John's. Lord, what about him? It's not a bad question. It's a caring question, but it is the first question that comes to his mind. And it is to that that Jesus responds in verse 22. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? What is that to you? You follow me. I've just told you, Peter, to follow me on a path that leads you to a martyr's death. What if I give him a path with no death at all? What is that to you? You must follow me. His immediate response to Peter could easily be summed up in this single word that we're using this morning. Focus. Focus on purpose. Now, I think we're all on very safe ground if we assume that Jesus wants Peter to care very much about John. And we're going to end this morning by spending a good amount of time thinking about how this reply does not contradict that call for him to care for John in any way. But we have to start by noticing that as Christ declares to Peter the path of faithfulness that he is to walk, we have to notice that it, it seems to matter greatly to Jesus that Peter care about that call. And that Peter place faithfulness on that path in a top position of priority in his mind. His reply to Peter's question about John, what is that to you? You follow me. It is the immediate declaration that Peter's question poses for him a potential distraction to this significant moment in his life and one that needed to be quickly swept away. Now, before we dig more deeply into that, and we're going to, let's first notice along with this that in verses 23 and 24, John adds a personal note into his narrative that actually achieves the same end of encouraging focus in this same way. In verse 23, he names a misunderstanding, doesn't he? So the saying spread abroad among the brothers, among, in the church, the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Isn't it fascinating to hear that in the first generation, in the earliest of church experience, already there, was, there were some rumors going around that were misunderstanding things that Christ had said. And it's not hard, I don't think, to see why some people would have taken Jesus' words that way. They simply failed to grasp that he was posing a hypothetical question to make a point rather than making a prediction. And I mean, he had just made a prediction right before this concerning Peter, hadn't he? It's not hard to see how a mistake like that is made, but John goes out of his way here in the text of Scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to make clear that that is a mistake. It's not what Jesus said. That's verse 24. Yet Jesus did not say to him, 
that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Just think about what impact it would have had that this rumor had begun to spread. Jesus is going to return in this man's lifetime. That guy right there. Before he dies, our Lord is going to return. If I'm convinced of that, what impact does that have on my efforts to build anything that will last beyond a few years? Especially as time continues to go on. Remember, John is correcting this as he's writing this gospel, a gospel which is written quite late compared to the others. He's aging here, and still this rumor seems to be circulating in some ways. If if I'm convinced of that mistake, it's going to have direct influence on the way that I conduct my life, the way that I, thinking of this context, the way that I walk the path that God has set before me. In other words, fulfilling the creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, to focus in these ways on what he has commanded, um, taking the time and effort to invest in a family and in the next generation, doing the work he's just been describing, feeding sheep, tending sheep, long-term investment. It all feels quite unnecessary. If I think Jesus has told me to set my own timer at just our own lifetime. So it's pretty ironic then, really, that Jesus' own encouragement to Peter here to focus and to fulfill his calling faithfully had actually become its own means of distraction from, other, with, uh, uh, from focus in the lives of others. And this John addresses head on by saying Jesus did not make that promise. Do not expect and live with that kind of an expectation that he has told us the timing of his return. So we notice here that both Jesus in the actual account with Peter and then John by his clarification here, they both call God's people to pursue the path God has assigned to them and to do so diligently and faithfully. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, why the caution on this? Why emphasize something that seems to put so much focus on me individually? There is a sense in which that's what this does. What is it to you, what God is bringing to these others? You follow me. That is a call to a particular kind of focus. Is that surprising to hear? Don't we lament how incredibly individualistic and me-focused our society has become? Aren't we trying to grow toward selflessness? So what do we do with this call? Very much of a kind of self-focus here in this text. Of course, the answer to that question is yes, we are being called to a selflessness. There's a very helpful place for us to go to think about this and the relationships in play here. The book of Galatians makes some, some very helpful comments. Would you turn with me just a moment to Galatians chapter 6? Look with me at some of what we see in the first five verses. Notice verse 1 first. In verse 1, we begin in a place of communal care and accountability. 
and we end in a place of personal responsibility. He writes, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's others' obligation. That's keeping watch on one another in a meaningful, involved way. And then the verse ends with this, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Very same thing happens again in verses 2 to 5. There, verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, verse 3 is a little bit tricky in what it warns. Is it warning us about pride that neglects caring for others? Or is it warning us about pride that neglects guarding oneself? It, it could be either. It may be both. But look at verses 4 and 5, how this piece ends. Those verses very clearly end this paragraph with a strong warning about walking our own path carefully. Verse 4, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. We could read that and say, how can you say that, Paul? Each will have to bear his own load. You just told us to bear each other's burdens. How can you say each will have to bear his own load? But these two statements, and Paul's a really smart guy. He, he's not contradicting himself back to back here, is he? We do well to love and care for one another, to bear each other's burdens. But you notice even the warning of verse 1 there. I do not answer to God for how you walked your path. I answer to God for how I have walked the path he gave to me. And Paul puts both of these together and he says, watch out for yourself as you are living in all of what Christ has commanded. My friends, doesn't that fit our present context in John 21? You can come back there if you've turned away. That fits so well what we see here where Jesus can say to Peter, what is it to you if I call John to an altogether different path than the one you must walk? Do not be distracted from following me on the path that I have chosen for you. My friends, this is tremendously valuable for us to hear from God's word. As I've thought about it, I think, I'm sure there are others, I think of four particular temptations that we regularly face where this exhortation from Christ can help us and can be applied. In fact, I think it's safe to say that we will deal with at least one of these temptations we're going to look through any time we engage in path comparing. Any time we fall prey to what is so easy for us to do, where we begin to stare at someone else's path instead of fixing our eyes on walking the one he's given to us. Four temptations, this is what I want us to move to now and to think about, that we must resist here in the, exactly this way. And I think the first two and the second two go together in ways. The first two temptations come when I'm staring at someone else's path and it looks good. It looks better than the one that I'm on. The second two temptations 
come when I'm staring at someone else's path and it looks bad. It looks worse than the one that I'm on. Let me give all four of them to you here and we'll look at each of them. The first is competing with the work of others. Number two, coveting the path given to others. Three, criticizing God for the path he's given to others. And four, compulsive attention on the spiritual walk of others. Let's look at each of these together. Number one, competing with the work of others. If I'm staring at someone else's path, especially a path that is similar in many ways to mine, it's especially easy then to grow competitive about the extent of the fruit that God is granting to me and to my efforts. Maybe it's about the usefulness or the appreciation of my gifts that I'm exercising. Maybe it's about the fruitful outcomes of our efforts. This happens in so many potential ways. Parents can compare the outcomes of their children to other people's children. Teachers can compare themselves to other teachers as regards feedback that they receive or some such. My goodness, there's really no place where this can't happen to us as we're living. Each summer we do a, a, a homemade ice cream uh, celebration on the, on the lawn. A servant who makes some homemade ice cream for our summer fellowship could check to see whose ice cream was more appreciated and better attended. Um, there's a competitiveness, especially as we see someone on a path that is similar to the one that we're on. And that competitiveness is more than capable of creating discontent and jealousy. And the reminder here, as regards that temptation, is simply this. The work that you have been given to do, and the skills you've been given to do it with, and the response from others and effect of your work, these things are of God. He is the one who gives the increase, who brings the fruit in his perfect timing. He calls you to walk after him on the path he's given you, not to compare the fruit of what he's allowing. It's exactly the point that Paul makes as he addresses people in his own time who seem to have been trying to pit him and Apollos against each other in a competitive way. You remember some of what he writes about that? We hear in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, and 7, we hear him respond to that. He says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. That's one temptation we will face if we engage in path comparing. We will begin to compete with the work of others as regards the fruit that God grants. The second temptation is similar to it, but there are some differences. The second temptation is that of coveting the path itself that God has given to others. Here, we're not comparing the outcomes or the fruit. We're noticing the differences in the actual paths, and we become covetous. Who in this life will not come to wrestle with this temptation at points in our lives? We might experience it on more than one kind of battlefield. It may be experienced on the battlefield of gifting. 
I, I see the gifts and talents that God has given someone else to minister in, to be involved with, that I wasn't given. And I resent it. I wish that that were the path that I could walk. Again, Paul deals with this, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians 12. The, the body of God's people is that. It's a body. And he describes a scenario where the foot is angry because it doesn't get to be a hand. The ear is angry because it's not an eye. And so they want to withdraw from the body and just decide they're not a part of the body because they're not that part. This can be experienced in that way, on the battlefield of gifting. It can be experienced on the battlefield. <coughs> Excuse me. My cold has turned into a cough, so you're going to have to uh, bear with me here. I'll try not to do that too much. It can also be experienced on the battlefield of suffering, can't it? Jealousy over the enablement and ease of someone else's path that God has given to them. When we deal with the, that particular season of temptation, there are some reminders that we have to preach to ourselves. And that a passage like this one comes in and helps us with. Because it calls us to remember that it is Christ who has chosen the path that he has given to us. And what he's asking us to do is to follow him on the path that he has assigned to us. He has absolutely no expectations whatsoever on you that you would follow him on the path he's given to someone else. He's called you to the path he's given to you. It's helpful as well. To remember, even just practically as we experience that kind of temptation, that whatever path it is that I see and feel this, this immediate response, whatever path it is I'm looking at that I'm tempted to feel jealous of, it's very helpful to remember that that path is inevitably presenting its own dark obstacles and trials, many of which you know nothing of. Uh, that lead that person on that path to struggle with the same jealousy as he or she looks at other people's paths. Now, it may be that a reply that comes in our mind as we think about that comfort would be something like this. Well, that may be so. It may be that that path has its own trials and darknesses, but I would take the struggles of that path over these any day. Have you known that thought? And see, this is where our Lord in his love and kindness to us gets very close to us as he did to Peter here. And he responds to it. He says, that may be so, but what of it? This is the path I've chosen for you. And it will end. You will follow me to its end. And it will end. So set your mind to following me. So that's coveting the path given to others. Do you see how both of those first two temptations are present to us when we stare at someone else's path and it looks better than ours? The last two temptations, 
I think are maybe even more subtle than that because they're temptations that arise when we stare at someone else's path and it doesn't look better. It looks worse, maybe much worse. If the first was competing with the work of others and the second was coveting the path given to others, the third is criticizing God for the path he's given to others. You watch helpless as your son or daughter endure a difficulty that you never had to endure. You watch. You watch as it is revealed that the path of someone very close to you is going to have pains, maybe long-term pains, seasons of darkness that are shocking to you to see as you look. And you compare it with your present path. Maybe you're in a peaceful bend in your path at the moment. And you think something like, God, are you really going to be that harsh to them? And in that moment, I trust that our Lord Jesus deals with us like he always does with his children, which is to say he is ready with far more grace and patience than we deserve. But in moments like that, his words to us are at least as frank as his words to Peter. Beloved, what is it to you? Yes, I have called your friend, your child, your spouse to a path with trials that you would never wish for them. And I will be with them every step of the way. I think he's quite accommodating to us and invites us to take those thoughts and wrestlings and bring them to him and wrestle with him and bring them to him in prayer and cry out to him. I think he loves it when we do that. But what will the end of that conversation be? as I then must turn and walk my next day. It will always be this. Child, you follow me. Never is it mine to stand and critique over the wise and faithful choices of God in selecting the paths Excuse me. In selecting the paths of the lives of others, never is that mine. It is mine in all of those sorts of circumstances to be hard at work, sharing his love, bearing the burdens of others, being, in fact, one of the very means by which our God leads and aids that person in their path, one of the means by which he is with them. In other words, follow Jesus, right? But the path he has chosen for them is not my business. And it is not my right ever to criticize God for the path that he has chosen to give to another. Does he not know what he's doing? And does he not do all things well? Final temptation to point out that we fall prey to as we stare at the paths of others, and especially as what we see is disturbing to us is that of compulsive attention on the spiritual walk of others. This, again, can be a little surprising to think about, because aren't we supposed to care about those we love and how they are doing 
as regards our Savior. But of course, the danger here isn't in the caring. There's not danger in caring. There is danger in fixating. We could think of it this way. I am to love the people around me. I am to live a selfless life. But I must never forget who I am really actually living for. I love those people. I am not living for those people. I am living for Christ himself who loved me and gave himself to me, who has bought me with a price, to whom I belong. And if I'm not careful, my fixation on the spiritual health of someone else could do one of two things. If they're doing well, I can actually come to live vicariously through their faithfulness. So happy am I to see the one on whom I'm fixating walking well with the Lord. I can be so relieved in that, that rather than remaining faithful myself and being diligent in my path, I can live vicariously through their faithfulness. Perhaps it's this way that there's this temptation with grown children. If they're doing well, I'm happy and satisfied, regardless of how well I am actually living before the Lord. Or alternatively, if they are doing poorly, or if they have even walked away from the Lord altogether. We could become so overwhelmed with grief that our own lives actually become consumed with it. See, what we're hearing about here are boundaries, aren't they? Right and proper boundaries that we must take care to set up and to drive deep into the bedrock. We see people around us. We love people around us. We are to serve and sacrifice for the people God has placed around us. But in the end, however they are doing, what is it to you? What if their path looks more fruitful? What if their path looks more pleasant? What if their path seems cruelly painful to you? What if you find them wandering off that path altogether? You follow me. I cannot ever do anyone else any good if I myself have come to forsake the path that Christ has set before me. I answer to him, and my path is set by him. So that a good thing has become a sinful thing if my nearness to others and love for others leads me to compare my path with theirs in these ways. Do you see how this picture joins with the other pictures in chapter 21? To help Christians walk well and live well in this world between our Lord's first and second coming. That's what has united all of this together. The first picture in the first 14 verses was one of tremendous encouragement to us. As he departs, not a single fish that Christ has sent these fishers of men to catch will fail to be brought to shore. The second picture in 15 to 17 was full of hope for us because it shows us, again, we walk after a shepherd who is known for his willingness to do the hard work to protect us. He's known to leave the 99 who are safe and to go and find the one who has wandered, chase him down, and restore him. He is faithful to do this. And we've seen here in these last verses, 
the encouragement that he gives us by pointing us to this kind of a focused life. As we walk in this age, he knows the path he's calling us to. And he calls us to fight the distractions of fear and of comparison. Such that we simply settle in to whatever that last day is that he has for us. We settle into a life lived by the mandate of verse 19. You follow me. Always you are surrounded by people who have all kinds of things going on in their lives. As God leads them down particular paths of their own. The people that you love and care about, they will have ups that you never get to experience in this life. And they will have downs that you will never have to. And we are called to be people who look away from ourselves, who are ready to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. All of those things are true. And in fact, as diminished as they are in our time, there are things we need to pursue deliberately. But we have to do it mindful of this warning that he's giving us here. That at the end of the day, what God chooses to do with him or with her does not alter your directive as one whom God has called into his family and into his service. You were bought with a price. You were gifted and burdened particularly, in particular ways. You were positioned in a particular way by the wise and perfect plans of God that he might be glorified in a particular set of ways as you walk this path. And you've been told by your Lord, follow me. May we live in such a way that longs to hear those words when at last we meet him face to face. Well done, good and faithful servant. Would you pray with me? Father, as is so often the case, we sense in the call this morning how hard it is for us to walk the line of faithfulness. We don't want to be people who live selfishly. We do not want to be worshipers of self. But neither do we want to live as idolaters who live for the people that we love instead of living for the one who has made us all. We thank you for bringing these things to our attention again this morning, and we look to you to guide us, as you have even by your holy word. Cause us, Father, to fix our eyes on Jesus, who you tell us is the author and perfecter of our faith. We ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen.